Salvaging lack of seriousness from too much. No, no. <laughs> Too meta. Okay. <laughs> Salvaging us from us. Yeah, exactly. You're listening to Mud Spattered Philosophy, an attempt to salvage academic thought from too much seriousness. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. This is Alisa Torres. And Alexis von Spagowski. And unfortunately, we will not be joined by Alex and F today. We're just a duo. But hopefully, <laughs> we will. he will be joining us next time. And... Besides, this is a more literary topic, so... He those, wouldn't understand. Those philosophy guys, you know, it's, <laughs> this is just above them. <laughs> Our topic for today is Flannery O'Connor, and we'll be looking at two of her essays. The Fiction Writer and His Country, and the other one is... The Grotesque in Southern Fiction. And uh, we'll be hopefully using those articles as or essays as a kind of springboard into her thought at large, uh, touching on on various stories and and our own experience reading her. I'm sure we'll all play some kind of factor. Okay, Flannery Connor. before we get into the essay specifically, let me go over just kind of a brief sketch of her life here from the the editors of the Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, it's, it's always good to, to get the opinions of the masses. Well, know? it's not that we don't know all these things already. They're not written on our... It's not that they're not written on right. our hearts, but maybe just to give you a source of... Of what other people are saying right, about right, right, her, right. You know? Some uh, authority behind but it. But the, the thing is, too, this is, this is pretty objective, factual knowledge. You know, you don't need to hear our specific take on when <laughs> she was born. What can we add to oh, that? Oh, I think it was a great year. It was a great year, exactly. Actually... I will say this, though. Flannery O'Connor was born on March 25th, 1925. And this, the encyclopedia, does not tell us that that is the Feast of the Incarnation. Which, there's something, there's something somewhat, you might say, providential in and The fact that she that. writes very incarnational fiction. Yeah. Let's, yeah. <laughs> we, we'll might, we might say. So, she was born in Savannah, Georgia, and died August 3rd, 1964, in Milledgeville, Georgia. She was an American novelist and short story writer, O'Connor grew up in a prominent Roman Catholic family in her native Georgia. She lived in Savannah until her adolescence, but the worsening of her father's lupus forced the family to relocate in 1938 to the home in rural Milledgeville, where her mother had been raised. After graduating from Georgia State College in 1945, she studied creative writing at the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop. Her first published work, a short story, appeared in the magazine Ascent in 1946, her first novel, Wise Blood, was published in 1952 and turned into a film in 1979. Okay, this is another thing I can add to this biography. <laughs> Insider information here. That the film was directed... No, I'm sorry. Was uh, The screenplay for that film was written by Benedict Fitzgerald. And so Benedict Fitzgerald uh, is the son of Sally and Robert Fitzgerald who published a lot of O'Connor's work after she died. And uh, Flannery O'Connor stayed with them when she was in New York for some of her studies at a certain point in her life, which I don't have that information here, but I'm sure you could find it really easily on the Encyclopedia Britannica. And (laughs) uh, so Sally and Robert Fitzgerald, right, so they published her work. Uh, Robert Fitzgerald is... Uh, famously known for a translation of 
Virgil's Aeneid, and he also translated several other classic works. And Benedict Fitzgerald, their son, also wrote the screenplay for The Passion. And so Flannery O'Connor babysat this kid. Kind of, kind of an interesting connection there, if I do say so myself. Anyway, her other works of fiction are a novel, The Vi- Violent Bared Away, and the short story collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge. A collection of occasional prose pieces, Mystery and Manners, appeared in 1969. The Complete Stories, published posthumously in 1971, contained several stories that had not previously appeared in her in book form. It won a National Book Award in 1972. Alexis says all of these books are like, literally <laughs> surrounding her. It's very impressive. I'm, I may or may not. I, I do own uh, everything she's ever written, including her book of letters called The Habit of Being. The Habit of Being. So that's here, too. So we're just kind of steeped in O'Connor right now. exactly. (laughs) We may or may not, uh, spring break, senior year, have gone to visit her uh, her Milledgeville farm together. and um, That was epic. Yeah, so this is... I have a peacock on my desk right now. (laughs) A wooden peacock, and it, on its beak... Is uh, are my glasses, and it's all it's all for O'Connor. Anyway, last last detail here, uh, wrapping it up. Disabled for more than a decade by the lupus she inherited from her father, which eventually proved fatal, O'Connor lived modestly, riding and raising peafowl on her mother's farm at Milledgeville. O'Connor's corpus is notable for the seeming incongruity of a devout Catholic whose darkly comic works commonly feature startling acts of violence and unsympathetic, often depraved characters. Okay, see, this is where secondary sources, they they slowly shift from very factual, objective claims into this kind of critique. This commentary. Is is it really incongruous? Is that a word? Incongruous. (laughs) Yeah, that word. (laughs) Is this incongruous? No, I don't know. See? I think we do know, and I think that's what we will discuss. Yeah, that is what we will discuss. So she explained the prevalence... Prevalence? Prevalence. (laughs) Why can't I pronounce anything? My mom's from the Bronx, so I never really pronounced anything right growing up, like water. I I never knew how to spell that. talking about a Southern writer. Exactly. Does she even know how to pronounce things? I don't know. She couldn't spell things. Famously, she was it's a true. terrible speller. Terrible so speller. Do we have to pronounce things? No. This is in honor of O'Connor. I miss right, right, pronouncing right. things. <laughs> sure. Anyway, a lot of brutality in her stories by noting... Okay, so she said... This is her explanation of the brutality. This brutality is strangely capable of returning my characters to reality and preparing them to accept their moment of grace. It is this divine stripping of human comforts and hubris, along with the attendant degradation of the corporeal, that stands as the most salient feature of O'Connor's work. Encyclopedia Britannica. Who knew, right? Who knew? February 1st, 2019. Last updated. 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 That's pretty, that's fairly uh, recent. Okay, so... <laughs> Beto, like, God is, is cursing the premium me. premium content people are paying for. <laughs> Actually, they're not paying for it. That's why they're getting it. Last updated. Updated? <laughs> updated. 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 Okay. Well, there you go. Secondary sources. You love them, you hate them. Can't live without them. Or you can. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. We're, we are secondary sources currently, as we're speaking on, on O'Connor. Can we live without ourselves? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> for another topic. <laughs> okay. Right, we said, do we get a transition? We transition we back, transition into, back into it. So, 
So the country. The fiction writer and his country. I really love reading O'Connor in her prose because she's, her voice is just so funny. Like it comes out so clearly in her essays. And so she starts off this essay complaining, essentially, um, about an editorial in Life magazine where some editors got together and decided that they needed to indict American fiction for not truly speaking for the, the American of today. That, that America being so prosperous, being so successful with, um, as they said, um, being coming nearer to producing a classless society than any other nation and being the most powerful country in the world, why on earth were the novelists not portraying such a, an amazing utopia? And O'Connor, from the very beginning, just has this very witty voice um, that comes in and begins indicting them um, for what she sees as a faulty vision on their part, that the reason they're saying such a thing is because they don't actually see clearly. And O'Connor wants to, in this essay, convince you that the thing that characterizes her literature, or her fiction and, and good literature, is a certain way of seeing, and that's seeing clearly. Right, and so, and what is forming that vision, she's saying, has to be rooted in not a classless society, but in a very identifiable country. And so I think part of part of the recommendations of this particular magazine, the, edit, the editors of this magazine, was uh, that the, the fiction writer, especially Southern fiction writers, ought to broaden their, their audience uh, and who they're writing to by broadening the culture that is forming their vision, right? So to, to make it, to instead of addressing just the mere South, to address all of America. Uh, she starts off from that point of critiquing it simply on the basis that it's not possible, right? O'Connor is very interested in, or not interested, I would say, but like committed to not being utopian, but to sticking with reality. Um, the, the editors of Life are critiquing American novelists for saying that they're not based in reality. But in O'Connor's view, you can't, you can't have this broad, classless, impersonal literature because it, the writer can only write about what he knows. And so that's why she particularly says that he has to write about his country, not of the world, because a country is something that is characterized by a particular, um, by particular manners and by particular traditions and history. And it is that that the writer can draw upon. He can't draw upon a life that he doesn't know from a country he doesn't know. He can only draw upon what is closest to him, which, he, which has formed um, his internal um, self and understanding. And she has a good definition of, of what the country... She, she defines what country means in this, in this particular essay, right? She says, The country that the writer is concerned with in the most objective way is, of course, the region that most immediately surrounds him, or simply the country, with its body of manners that he knows well enough to employ. Right, so, okay, in the cultivation of Southern manners, there is a certain alienation from the rest of the country as a whole that's necessary, uh, and that this provides both a set of virtues and vices, as as she'll go on to illuminate. But the, the passage that think Alexis was pointing out to, to me earlier before this recording 
Um, did you want to read that really quick? Yeah, she says that um, she's... I'm going to back up a little bit to give a little context because I could read just the actual quote and that would be beautiful and enlightening, but she's so much more funny when she also gets to indict other people. So she says, at least we are all known to be anguished. And she's speaking of Southern writers in particular. The writers of the editorial in question suggest that our anguish is a result from our isolation from the rest of the country. I feel that this would be news to most Southern writers. The anguish that most of us have observed for some time now has been caused not by the fact that the South is alienated from the rest of the country, but by the fact that it is not alienated enough, that every day we're getting more and more like the rest of the country, that we are being forced out of not only of our many sins, but of our few virtues. This may be unholy anguish, but it is anguish nevertheless. So I have a friend, <laughs> let's name her Abby, as if that was her real name. Hypothetically. Hypothetical, Abby, who her favorite thing about O'Connor is ocular imagery. Because O'Connor is famous, at least within people who read O'Connor, for using um, ocular imagery as a large way to bring home her themes. Um, this is typified particularly on the cover of her novel Wise Blood, that is literally just a, a disembodied face with a pair of dark glasses. Um, and the reason that she, I would hypothesize, the reason that she is so fond of using ocular imagery is because in writing fiction she has this particular idea of vision, right? That's why it's important to her that she um, stays true to her country, quote-unquote country, whatever that particularly means, because that is part of what informs her vision. The same thing is true with her Catholicism. Her Catholicism is extremely important, not just to her personally, but to her as a fiction writer because it is so informative for her vision. And O'Connor, one of the biggest critiques of O'Connor, especially by people who don't like her, is that she is too grotesque, right? And there's this, this, um, this understanding of O'Connor as someone who just uses senseless violence to shock the reader, and it's not a, it's not beautiful, it's not what have you. But for O'Connor, this grotesqueness is attached fundamentally to vision. And so at the end of The Fiction Writer and His Country, I'm gonna skip to the end of the essays, just so we can say that we got there. Exactly. She, um, Get she writes, when you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs you do, you can relax a little and use more normal means of talking to it. When you have to assume that it does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the heart of hearing, you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. And so those large and startling figures are how O'Connor is describing her grotesque imagery within her novels and her fiction. And that grotesque imagery is necessary, O'Connor says, because she needs to shock her readers into seeing things more clearly. Well, and, and part of that grotesque imagery, as she will mention in the other essay that we we spoke of in the beginning, the some aspects of the grotesque in Southern fiction, she talks about how the, uh, the grotesque is recognizable in the South because they still have some kind of understanding of what man is, some concept of human nature. And so the grotesque is never divorced for O'Connor from redemption. And in fact, that's what's forming her vision. And she says this quite clearly in, in the fiction writer and, and his country. 
She says, this means that for me, the meaning of life is connected in our redemption by Christ, and that what I see in the world, I see in its relation to that. And so, again, this uh, part of her kind of project uh, will be convincing her readers that they still need redemption, right? And so, uh, in order to, to do that, it's going to require some, some shouting, particularly for an audience where I think in the, in the South, where it's this kind of Bible belt culture, the uh, Christianity and grace can be um, over-familiarized, that there's a sense of, there's, there's not this kind of scandal by grace anymore, right? And that man's particular redemption is lost in just the kind of uh, the, the mannerisms of, of his society. And so I think there is, there's this kind of, right, she has this great, great line on, on what her, on what redemption, how, how necessary it is to point her readers to this redemption. She says, redemption is meaningless unless there is a cause for it in the actual life we live. And for the last few centuries, there has been operating in our culture the secular belief that there is no such cause. And so I think in a lot of her stories, right, she's shouting to her audience, right, there that that man is crippled fundamentally, not just, I think she'll, she'll use a lot of images of misfits, right, where, like you mentioned earlier, Alexis, the Holga with the peg leg, uh, or even Hazel Motes with this kind of uh, intellectualism that just make makes him kind of a uh, stranger to society. Well, you have literally the misfit. There, right, the misfit, famously in, in A Good Man is Hard to Find. In Revelation, you have Mary Grace, who is, she's this kind of teenage girl who is a little bit edgy in the doctor's office, and her face is covered with acne, and she has this kind of very... A critical kind of gaze toward all of her, uh, all of the surrounding people in the doctor's office. And it's, it's through these people, and it's often, well, it's both simultaneously, that these people are often the instruments of grace or the receivers of grace. Uh, but it is, it's O'Connor's project to kind of, to kind of bring her readers face to face with the ugliness of human nature, so as to to allow them to experience the redemption that uh, that is so necessary for all of mankind. It's interesting because you said there was an over-familiarity kind of in the South, um, possibly um, with with the religious sense. Um, and so redemption is not, not a scandal, or grace is not a scandal anymore. But I think it's also um, O'Connor is writing for a society in a world that because it's not just familiar with... The Christian claim of grace, but it's also overly familiar with the Christian claim of that that all men are fallen, right? So it's kind of like a, a boy who cried wolf situation, where people have gotten so used to being like, oh yeah, the fall, Adam and Eve, right? Sure, sure, we're fallen. Let's just live our lives, move on with it. That the the claim that man is fallen and broken doesn't seem to doesn't do shock, anything. right? Doesn't yeah. shock, and so. She would she would say something along the lines of it's her truth. She's she's trying to write things large so that the truth, which should be clear to everyone, 
can actually be brought to their faces, that it's something which should be shocking, right, that, that sin should be shocking, and yet, because it isn't, she has to show her readers how sin actually looks. Yeah, and that's, I think that's, yeah, that's a good distinction there, because you have to be a little bit more concrete here, as I think Flannery O'Connor, Flannery O'Connor, Flannery O'Connor would, uh, would appreciate. The, so the short story that I mentioned earlier, Revelation, right, the main character is Mrs. Turpin. And throughout the entirety of the story, Mrs. Turpin is very aware of, of Jesus Christ, right, the reality of Jesus. And she is uh, constantly praising Jesus for, you know, making her the way that she is, and, you know, even in her defects and whatever it is. And so she seems to be coming from this fundamentally Christian attitude, even one of, you know, Thanksgiving, where she is uh, seeing that she is uh, not equal to to Christ, but that Christ has this kind of uh, governance over her. But e- but it's precisely Mrs. Turpin who requires this kind of scandal of grace, right? That she doesn't actually realize enough. She hasn't actually come to terms with uh, the necessity for redemption in her life, right? And so it's, it's again, grace in the most unlikely places. So it's, it's this teenage girl sitting across a room, Mary Grace, who ends up throwing a book at Mrs. Turpin's face. That, that, that's the kind of, what would you say, climax of the story. And the, the name of the book is famously is uh, Human Development, right? So Mrs. Turpin can use a little bit of development. And, and all of a sudden, this kind of, again, this ocular vision kind of manifests itself in O'Connor's story. So at the very beginning of the short story, the uh, Mrs. Turpin's vision, right, the way that O'Connor describes it, she sees herself as very large in a very small doctor's office. And then when Mary Grace throws the book at her, the vision inverses, and she all of a sudden sees herself on the ground and is hit by the book. Mary Grace, you know, calling her famously a, a warthog from hell. And all of a sudden, the doctor's room is very large, and Mrs. Turpin is very small. And and this vision even expands, right? Even though this is the climax, there is, strangely in this story, another moment of grace for her at the very end, where she is looking up at the sky and kind of uh, yelling back, uh, yelling to God. You know, there's this great line where she's asking, you know, who do you think you are? And the response that she gets is an echo. Who do you think you are? And so it's this kind of interesting detail where uh, she's just, she's allowed to face, you know, her own, her own humanity. And that, that alone is uh, a realization of grace. And so she sees the sky kind of open before her and all of the kind of misfits, right, and freaks are, are running to paradise in front of her. And she is at the, the end of the line, right? So the, the hierarchy that she, she thought she had established, this kind of order, is completely brought to chaos. And, and again, that vision is expanded. And it's a vision of redemption, right? That actually brings up something that... It's one of my favorite things about O'Connor, um, and is that that is absolutely ridiculous, right? We've got this character who goes into a doctor's office, and then there's this surly teenage girl in there who throws a book at her head. I don't know the last time that happened to you in a doctor's office. Right. <laughs> and then she goes home and is, like, having existential angst about this, and then she sees a vision in the heavens right, right. open up before her, which, again, in my angstiest and most existential moments, 
don't usually have visions showing up for me. Right? <laughs> and O'Connor, this was one of the big critiques of O'Connor, right? That she is not realistic. And she says in the grotesque in Southern Fiction, I am always having it pointed out to me that, in li- that life in Georgia is not at all the way I picture it. That escaped criminals do not roam the roads exterminating families, nor Bible salesmen prowl about looking for girls with wooden legs. Nor, I would add, personally, do uh, little girls in, in doctor's offices throw books at people's head. Like, uh, O'Connor's Georgia is crazy. Right. Um, and yet, that's the point for O'Connor. Mm-hmm. Um, and she still sees herself as a kind of realist. Well, yeah, that's what I was saying. But she is redefining what that means, or, or at least... She's rediscovering what that means. Yeah, right? rediscovering so is, is her, a better Her it. point with, with all this insanity is that what, the, what society and what, what the modern reader is considering real is not actually what is the most real. Right, so that that in using these images of of grotesque and, and insane things happening, she's actually trying to wake the reader up to something that's more fundamentally real, right? Um, so she she says in she says later on that whenever I'm asked why Southern writers particularly have a penchant for writing about freaks, I say it's because we're still able to recognize one, right? That so O'Connor believes that her discussion of the freak is very very real it's it's a real image of what is going on in her country in um in her vision um and this is particularly contrasted with that article or that editorial from life that we were talking about in the beginning where they wanted a a literature that spoke for the american of this almost classless society that is extremely powerful and more prosperous than it's ever been right in that in that editorial, they're making a very bold claim that this is that this kind of material prosperity um, is the most real thing, and so the fiction writer should reflect that, right? That his his stories should have this kind of optimism because this is where we are. But I think, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, that O'Connor is actually suggesting that that is that is an, a utopian view, not a realistic view, right? Because the realistic view. Um, sees that even in the midst of this material prosperity that life is proclaiming, life, the magazine, of course, um, is proclaiming, there is um, a spiritual deformity. So in this material, materially prosperous and well-ordered American world, mm-hmm. right, the inside, the inner American, right, the, the, the true nature of society is actually poor and is actually grotesque and freakish Mm -hmm. and so when she's writing about these freaks she's not making this up she's not um pulling this out of thin air she's actually writing about what's more true well right the the outward prosperity and and that's it's i think due to the nature of the object she's describing right which is this kind of spiritual vision right and so there's this actually this great chapter in Spirit of the Liturgy by Ratzinger, and it's on icons, and he has this great section on realism where he's talking about there how the differences between various modes of painting, and he's he was saying that there's often some paintings that are very realistic, right? It's almost like a, a photograph of something. Uh, and he says that actually doesn't capture reality in the way he says an icon might. Uh, and even though the icon, right, it's not as three-dimensional, right, there's a kind of flatness to it. There's a spiritual reality that it's speaking to 
that by kind of diminishing the merely descriptive uh, kind of mode of expressing itself, that the icon actually speaks to something more spiritual uh, and therefore more real. And so I think there's something similar with O'Connor where, uh, you know, how, how do you poetically express the kind of poverty and depraved nature of the human heart uh, in, in images? Right. When she opens her lecture on the Catholic novelist in the Protestant South, she she uh, kind of laments about how she would rather be reading one of her stories, but she's been asked to give statements and that statements are a little bit more palatable these days to, to large audiences. And she says even more palatable and desirable are facts and statistics, right, she says. And so I think that that kind of right hierarchy where you're starting with stories, then you're going, you're moving to statements and then going to statistics, it gets uh, less and less poetically rich and uh, more and more surfaced instead of the kind of the, the I think the what a story lends itself to is describing a reality that is that can't be described in mere statements, right? You need images. You need to experience uh, what these characters are experiencing in order to get at the reality and the vision that Flannery O'Connor is wishing her readers to enter into. It's a picture of Dorian Gray situation, right? The, the, the reality of, of Dorian Gray is that his soul is ugly. And so that, that picture picks up on the ugliness of his soul. But his outward appearance is this beautiful, um, very attractive man, right? And so she's, she's kind of saying that, um, that this call for a, a real, quote-unquote, real um, American fiction is putting a, a beautiful face on something that's ugly. And she's just bringing the ugliness out so that you can see on the outside what is in the inside. You can see what that portrait is. And the, and the perfect, I think, in, inversion of that kind of advertisement perfection would be, right, the, uh, the face of Christ. And she mentions this famously in her introduction to, what is it, the um, memoir to Marianne? Yes, uh, of Marianne. Of Marianne, excuse me. And she was commissioned to write this by the Dominican sisters of Hawthorne. And she, the, the sisters wanted Flannery O'Connor to write an entire biography on Marianne. But Flannery O'Connor said, you know, I'm, I don't write about saints. You know, I'd, I'd rather write about, again, the grotesque, the freaks among us. And so she, but she did agree to at least write a introduction. And these particular Dominican sisters uh, they were, I guess, dealing with terminally ill patients, cancer patients. And so every patient that they, they uh, took care of, uh, they saw them through their last days. And so this is one of the reasons why they wanted to reach out to, to O'Connor, because she, she knew and understood the beauty of the grotesque, or the beauty that can be experienced even despite or amidst the grotesque. Uh, and so she compares some of the patients, uh, which the, the sisters took care of, to the face of Christ and how it's by staring at at Christ's grotesqueness that we again come come to be redeemed that our we can kind of move in sympathy with his own agony and uh, and ugliness and enter into his glory but it that that downward motion is necessary which she mentions also in in some aspects of the grotesque in Southern fiction. And she says, I am often told that the model 
of balance for the novelist should be Dante, who divided his territory up pretty evenly between heaven, purgatory, and paradise. There can be no objection to this, but also there can be no reason to assume that the result of doing it in these times will give us the balanced picture that it gave in Dante's. Dante lived in the 13th in the 13th century, when that balance was achieved in the faith of his age, we live now in an age which doubts both fact and value, which is swept this way and that by momentary convictions, etc. So well, I think I think what you, I think what you're trying to say there is that um, that there's this idea that everything should be well ordered and there should be this very even delineation between hell heaven and purgatory but that doesn't work today because we don't even know that hell exists right so that, right that but is it that it doesn't work or that it it's it, it's, it's done differently no it doesn't work today interesting right now not that it um that that you can't um you can't even use that model she's like there's nothing wrong with that model but i don't i don't see any reason why it would work today because we don't even recognize the categories so <laughs> right but the, but there is something in flannery o'connor that that seems to kind of follow that um, that mode, right? So that she she enters into the brokenness of of human nature. There is this kind of uh, turn, right? This uh, this shift for many of her characters. This what would you call it? I mean, I guess in the James Joyce uh, kind of way, this epiphany, and then it it's there's an intimation of redemption. Uh, oftentimes it's left ambiguous, but there is that kind of movement, right? Yes. I mean, it's not right. It's not the same project as Dante, but I, but I mean, there's, there's movement, but there isn't delineation between this the the, um, the freaks are in hell and and the and the redeemed no, that are is in heaven, true, right? right? There is this idea that um, as fallen people, we have all inhabited that that mode of freak, right? Mm-hmm. Of of the grotesque figure, and so. Um, but but we're still hoping for redemption, and so the uh, the the last shall be first, right? That the, the freaks mm-hmm. will be able to enter heaven um, if redeemed. But I, I think that yeah, it's all it, just right. There there isn't there. the same kind of like hierarchical structure that Dante is going for. But I do think that so like Dante famously ended every every part of his Divine Comedy with the stars, and there's a lot of those kinds of illusions in Flannery O'Connor where. Uh, who's the who's the character in Wise Blood who dresses up as a monkey? Enoch. Yeah, Enoch. Right. That when he runs off into the distance, that you just see the the city skyline, and that uh, throughout the entirety of that novel, there's this this really striking imagery of nobody looking at the sky. So the the citizens of that of the city, I can't remember. Talkingham. Okay. It's been a very long time since I read it, but I do remember this particularly, um, that they were described as, as not looking at the sky. And so there's, there is this sense, again, a vision of, um, of this kind of like inward kind of perspective that the characters gain, and then this kind of outward uh, movement towards some larger horizon. So there's, there's that kind of Anyway. Right. No, I'm, I'm not doubting you. I just mean that I, it's not um, it's not immediately clear that that is a reference to Dante unless you're unless unless you have the the insight that she is specific like that was where it was influenced. Yeah. From. Well, and and this is this is one I think this is actually a critique that I have of many readings of Flannery O'Connor, and it's one that I fall into often where it's uh, 
She's written so much on her writing where it becomes very easy to take her essays, take her commentaries, little things that she said in interviews, and then read it back into the stories. She does the scholarship on herself. Exactly. Right. She does it. Exactly. And so it's not to say that those things aren't in there, but I do think that there can be uh, a tendency to to enter into a kind of, what is it called, eisegesis? Mm -hmm. When you are, you're not actually doing the, the heavy lifting of a close reading of right. O'Connor's stories. Right. And you're just kind of saying, okay, well, she was Catholic. She liked peacocks. And so whenever you <laughs> whenever you see the color blue, like that is a reference to peacocks, which I've no And joke. also Mary. And also Mary, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, and, and so I do think that that's, that's fair. And it's, it's a difficult thing to do, though, because it's like, well... You have her stories, and then you have her literally commentating right. on her stories. Right. Uh, but to be able to to kind of separate those, because I th- I do think it's true, and and I even think well, I feel like O'Connor would agree with this, but maybe I should just say this without saying what O'Connor th- thinks about it. Uh, that that art does transcend the artist. Yeah, yeah, you know that that an artist is using tools that don't belong to him. Mm-hmm. You know, and so uh, so I think it's true for Flannery O'Connor. Um, yeah, and so it's, and especially also with, with someone like Flannery O'Connor, who a lot of her stories are doing something very similar. So it becomes, again, easy to say, oh, I've read, you know, seven of her stories. So I know exactly what's going to happen in this next one. And I know the kind of patterns that this one will fall into and the kind of archetypes that it'll be hitting. Uh, when that's, that's not fair to the story itself, you know, Uh, and that there are some, especially... The one, I think it's the Enduring Chill. Mm-hmm. Were you there? We, we had these great reading groups at Belmont Abbey where it would just be at a professor's house and a bunch of us would get together and read either I, an essay or a short story. The Enduring Chill, the one where you guys read The Enduring Chill was the one right before, like I came at the next one and I was so mad that oh. I had not come one earlier because that I read one O'Connor was a and I was so mad. Well, and there was, it was, it was a really good conversation and... The, per- the professor who was leading this, this conversation, uh, Dr. Chavone, he, uh, he made a really interesting point, and I, I think he was kind of picking up on the tendency among all of the students, right? Oh, we've read O'Connor, you know, we've been introduced to her since freshman year, and, and we kind of know what this is about. And we just, we weren't at all uh, critical. We weren't at all taking the story on its own terms. So the main character of this story, Asbury, uh, the the final scene here is him. He's laying on his bed, and this dove just descends upon him. So uh, it reads, His limbs that had been racked for so many weeks by fever and chill were numb now. The old life in him was exhausted. He waited the coming the coming of new. It was then that he felt the beginning of a chill, a chill so peculiar, so light, that it was like a warm ripple across a deeper sea of cold. His breath came short. The fierce bird, which through the years of his childhood and the days of his illness had been poised over his head, waiting mysteriously, appeared all at once to be in motion. Asbury blanched, and the last film of illusion was torn as if by a whirlwind from his eyes. He saw that for the rest of his days, frail, racked, but enduring, he would live in the face of a purifying terror. A feeble cry, a last impossible protest escaped him, but the Holy Ghost, emblazoned in ice instead of fire, continued implacable to descend. 
So there's this weird resistance throughout the story that Asbury has, has for grace and anything religious. And at the very end, there's it's very, very uh, ambiguous what the kind of turning point is for him. And, and so anyway, the, the argument that this professor was making is that, you know, grace doesn't actually work this way. And this is actually, uh, is not as Catholic in the sense of some of her other stories. And that grace, you know, I guess in the kind of Thomistic understanding, always, always perfects nature. It doesn't just, it doesn't just place itself on top or, or destroy nature. Well... Given that said professor is not here, I don't know, I think it would be quite fair to argue with, you know, your account of, of, you course, know, of, of, of what he was saying. He's probably cringing at my right. description. <laughs> I never said that. Um, <laughs> but I, personally, I think that, I think that, like, there's definitely um, a need to separate the author from the author's words on their story, right? The, the stories have a life of their own. But it's interesting, particularly with such a prolific short story writer, um, how each story stands on its own, and yet you also kind of want to view the stories in light of the other stories that she has written. Um, and so, like, with a story like that, where um, the way way Grace seems to affect the character towards the end um, is, is different than in, in, in her other stories. I think you kind of want to take your idea of what, of what Grace, of what she's saying Grace is, you know, from, from more of an aggregate of, of the stories together. Right, so that um, her ideas are shown through multiple different particularities um, to form a more nuanced and, and full whole. Um, right, there are St. Paul's and there are St. John's. Exactly, exactly. I was thinking of St. Paul when, um, when you were recounting his... Right. When you were counting... Because you can't words. build an entire theory of grace just on that one right. encounter right. on the road to um, Damascus. <laughs> get it all out there um, he wasn't on a horse by the way okay go on <laughs> just like we all need to know oh, yes I just it's he important not you know on close reading right um, and so I think that um, kind of just to finish up here that's one particular example of grace in her stories of of how she uses these very strange images to speak to a, a, a deeper reality um, of that strange dove hovering over his head and, and this enduring chill. In her first novel, Wise Blood, she has, it's a very peculiar novel. I highly uh, recommend that anyone read it, but also go into it knowing <laughs> that it's very peculiar. You're in portrait. I mean, there are people dressing up in, in gorilla costumes and as one does. As, as one does. Um, there's there's blindings left and right, um, as as there are. As um, there are. <laughs> anyway, and so I, I I just I feel like that's a wise blood is a good place to leave off with a particular image that she has in wise blood that is again very strange but speaks to a reality. And so in Wiseblood, um, the main character, Hazel Motes, comes from a religious background um, where he grew up, always being told that he was going to be a preacher. And then he has this violent turning away from this, from this destiny of his, and um, he becomes very anti-God, um, right? That he, he goes around preaching atheism. Mm -hmm. um, but part of his The problem, Church of Jesus Christ without Jesus Christ. Yes, the Church of Christ without Christ. It's... it's it's amazing. I reckon um, you haven't been redeemed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 
part of the the poor guy's problem is that he he's trying to embrace this this virulent atheism and all the while he's being haunted in his head um, by this ragged figure of Jesus poking back poking around um, back in the forest of his mind that as far away as he tries to run from Christianity as, as violent as he tries to be against Christianity and the truths that he was brought up in this ragged figure right this is not a this is not a figure of splendor this is not you know Christ on high this is this ragged figure of Jesus is just haunting him in the back of his mind and won't let him go um, and so when O'Connor is talking about how why the South and the fiction in the South is so grotesque it is particularly to her because like we said earlier um, they're still able to recognize a freak why are they able to recognize freak? It's not because they have this grand vision in the South that the rest of the country is lacking because the South has hold on held on to Jesus as you know the, everyone else has gone to hell. You know, like that's not that's personal Lord and Savior. Definitely not what she's saying. Um, instead, she's saying that uh, she says I think it is safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ centered, it is most certainly Christ haunted. The Southerner who isn't convinced of it is very much afraid that he may have been formed in the image and likeness of God. And so, um, for O'Connor, the, the South is haunted by that ragged figure in the back of their mind, where they don't necessarily believe in God, but they're awfully afraid that he's still there. And it's that, it's that fear that, that's, that makes what is around them slightly incongruous, right? It's this, it's this little thing that, that makes, that, that is a clue that perhaps their vision needs to be altered, needs to be fixed. And that is what she is trying to do. Yep, absolutely. And I think Hazel Motes does bring that out really nicely. He's got so many great things. <laughs> I remember when I was reading that story, uh, taking that Flannery O'Connor class, I would be texting all my friends, like all all the, his like his tropes. One of them is the, uh, uh, ain't nobody with a good car needs to be justified. <laughs> Which is like, just, I mean, it's, I think it does actually encompass a lot of the things we we're saying where it's, why he has to justify not being justified, right. you know, and right. there's this kind of like meta thing going on with all of his protests that just is speaking to his own need for redemption. Right. He's, and I can't, I can't walk away with No, that. please. Go like ahead. <laughs> in the very beginning of the story, he's on this train and we don't know much about him yet, but he goes into this car um, to, to eat into the, into the dining car to eat. And he's sitting with a bunch of women and these women I think the best description of them would be they are a product of society. Mm-hmm. That they, um, or, or what O'Connor is portraying as society here, that just they don't care at all about anything transcendental, about anything um, apart from their basic physical reality. And so they're just sitting there eating their food, and Hazel Motes is glaring at them and saying, if you were a Christian, I wouldn't want it. Like, if you were saved, I wouldn't want to be saved. Right. And like attacking them about things they don't care about. Right. Right. And so Hazel is this, is actually the, the, the closest to God. Yeah. Even as he is the most, most atheistic because out of all of them, he's afraid that God exists. Right. And he's afraid that he has been redeemed. And so he's running from that. Whereas everyone else doesn't even, 
doesn't care because yeah. they don't. They're in a kind of Kierkegaardian, unrealized despair. Right. Where right. it's like it's it's better to despair and have a greater realization of self and authenticity than to just be in this state again of over familiarized apathy. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's just you you know you go to your your Bible Belt Sunday school and you come out and and everything's the same. Right. And know? so perhaps because the South to O'Connor is in such bad shape. They might be their saving grace because yeah. that that poverty awakens them to the fact that maybe maybe they're running from someone and maybe uh, or maybe they're running from something and that something is a someone. Oh, nice. I, see, I see what you did there. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, so read Flannery O'Connor. I feel like there's still so much more that we, we could discuss. Give, well, we should just give our recommendations of like the two best short stories. Okay, we go think for it. Should read. Oh, well, yes. oh, okay. I recommend starting off with Revelation. And my personal favorite is Parker's Back. Parker's Back, it took her four years to write. It was the last one she wrote on her deathbed. It, it ties in some of the things we were talking about with icons and uh, very incarnational. It's got a great ending. And I think it's, it's just packed with imagery. So... Now my I wish I'd favorite. gone first because Parker's <laughs> Back is also my well, personal favorite. Well, there you go. Favorite. More reason. But I'll give two other ones. Um, obviously... Um, you should read um, A Good Man is Hard to Find. I know it's the, the stereotypical one, and I always like ran away from it because it was the stereotypical one. I was like, I, I thought it was overrated because of that. I have gained a new appreciation for it lately because it really is a there brilliant story. So that is um, A Good Man is Hard to Find. And then also, you should definitely read The Life You Save May Be Your Own. Mm, um, a good one. It's, that is one of my favorite of her stories. And in it... Just check out how she uh, how she views grace, and I think it, it takes redemption takes place a little bit differently in that story than all the other all for other ones, or you know some of her other ones. So it's, it's an interesting <laughs> read each story basically. Just read all of them. Read everything. Yeah, and and also her novels and her, her letters, her letters, her essays. Just just read. She's them got all. this great prayer book that came out. Oh recently. yeah, a prayer journal. Yeah, which is like I think like the last entry is like, and now I want chocolate chip cookies. Oh, she's amazing. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> we also have there's that, no pretense. You know. So anyway, Flannery O'Connor, much more can be said, but that's, that's the uh, heavy lifting that, that you'll all have to do. So <laughs> hopefully we've uh, not discouraged you from, from delving in. All, all right. right. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Consider supporting Mud Spattered Philosophy in our effort to promote the great ideas of Western civilization. For more information, you can visit the Mud Spattered Philosophy Facebook page. Shoot us an email at mudspatteredphilosophy at gmail.com or visit our website at mudspatteredphilosophy.weebly.com. Thanks for tuning in.